I can't remember if I did this uh, both services last week or not, but I had a major faux pas, so I'll confess that to you guys, and if I didn't do it first service, then no harm and no foul. So at least at, after second service, you know you use illustrations when you teach so that people remember the point. So if they remember the illustration but they don't remember the point, it doesn't serve much purpose. So I had, at least after second service, several people come up to me to ask me what had happened to the stereo receiver I had mentioned at the front end of the teaching. And I had no idea I hadn't completed the story. So if that was you, they gave me a new receiver. And that's the end of that. But the point was, somebody outside you has to give you life. Anyway, I heard from so many people, it's like, I better cover that base. So, guys, if you would, take a peek at this before we get started here. See if I know how to use this. So, this is a reproduction of the Temple Mount. During, uh, this would have been during Jesus' days. This is something that we think it looked like. and um, That's the Temple itself, the Holy Place, and the Holy of Holies back here. <clears throat> but this would be up on what was called Mount Zion. And this would be the Eastern Wall. This area right here... And, and actually, I searched and searched for good images of this to make the point. I'm not sure this one's even accurate, but it, we'll use it. Um, depending on your status, your sex, your ethnicity, you were restricted more or less on the Temple Mount where you could go. So whether this is it or not, we're going to pretend this is. This, this sand-colored area with the wall in front of it would have been called the Court of the Gentiles. And that wall that we see here is called the Soreg. And Josephus, who lived through the destruction of the temple, he told us that that wall, that Soreg, was about four and a half to five feet tall. And then on top of that, and, and this one really doesn't show it or doesn't show it well, on top of that there was a lattice work that went up higher. And then the lattice work itself was interspersed with these stones, fairly good sized stones. And each one of those stones was a sign. Actually, I better read this because I'm going to forget what it said. I know the main point. But. So this is what every one of those stones on top of that wall said. Uh, no intruder, that means a non-Jew, no intruder is allowed in the courtyard and within the wall surrounding the temple. Whoever enters will invite death for himself. So if you were a non-Jew and you passed that wall, oh, guys, help me out. I'm hitting the wrong button. Thank you. Ah. Uh, <laughs> Am I, thank you, thanks, thanks. So if you were a non-Jew and you were in this white area, the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, the court of the Israelites, and then the priestly court where the sacrifices were made, that was a death penalty if the Jews caught you doing that. Now, that comes into a story in Acts 21, and if you remember, Paul had come back from the missionary journeys and he's brought some Gentiles with him. And on a particular day when those Gentiles are not with him, he goes up to the temple. And some Jews there who are not Christians, they've not converted to Christ, they're Jewish Jews, they see Paul and they see him pass the court of the Gentiles. They assume that there are Gentiles with him. And so they nail him on this because this was a serious, serious thing that a Gentile would come closer to Yahweh than they were allowed by the law of Moses. And you know, and actually... It's Paul's arrest there that leads to his arrest for the next two or three years in Palestine, takes him to Rome, he's released again, ends up in Rome again, and executed. This was the first step. 
And it was the fact that Jews there thought Paul had brought a Gentile beyond the wall that was meant to keep Gentiles on one side and Jews on the other. That was the thought. There was this distance between Gentiles and Jews and their access to God. And you see this, by the way, in the Law of Moses in Numbers 151. Before there was a temple, there was a tent. We called it a tabernacle. And back in that day, God said that when the Levites had set up that tent, the stranger that comes near <clears throat> excuse me, shall be put to death. Because the tabernacle had the same thing too. You only got so close to Yahweh. Even as a Jew, but a stranger, a non-Jew, was not supposed to be near Yahweh. Remember under the law, there's all these points of division between God and even His covenant people. So we're going to be this morning in Ephesians 2. We're going to be in the second half of that passage. And this thing, the whole thing with the knowledge of God, to be able to draw near to God, to have the knowledge of God, to be close to God, that's what Paul's bringing up here. You remember the theme of this epistle is that God's going to tell us how He is reconstituting all things so that when He's done, Christ is over all things. God reconciles to Himself all the alienation, all the rebellion to Himself through Christ, through Christ's Lordship over all other things. And we're looking at that in relationship to Gentiles and Jews in the passage we're in this morning. So, if you've got your Bible, we're in Ephesians 2, we're in verses 11 through 22. If you use a pew Bible, I think this is page 976. So Paul's continuing. He's talked to individuals about their alienation from God last time in the first 10 verses. Guys, I'll make some comment just for clarification as we go through. He says, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, the Ephesian believers he's writing to are almost all Gentiles, non-Jews. You're called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that from Abraham on, the sign of the covenant God had with Abraham's heirs was circumcision. So to call someone uncircumcised for a Jew was, a, was an insult. In fact, if you remember, uh, I can't remember if it was David or someone else in the Old Testament said these uncircumcised Gentiles, it's like, what a put down. They're uncircumcised and they're Gentiles. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ, just like in the first ten verses, there was a bunch of bad news, and then there was suddenly a pivot point at which all the good news comes in. You see the same thing here at verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace who has made both of us one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, the hostility between Jews and Gentiles, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that is the Mosaic Covenant, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both, Jews and Gentiles, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. 
That's an Old Testament reference we won't get into this morning. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. You're members of the household of God. You're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So guys, last week, the whole theme really we spent so much time on was saying you're dead. You were dead. You weren't mostly dead. You were really dead spiritually. You were dead with a tag on your toe in the morgue. You were that dead individually. And so it it took Christ's redeeming sacrifice to bring an individual to new life. It took God's work in Christ on the cross to bring an individual to new life. This morning, he's basically saying it it took God's work on the cross in Christ to bring Gentiles to God and to do so by breaking down the wall that separated them from the Jewish nation, the folks that had the knowledge of God already. So Paul said there in the first 10 verses, you're dead. Well, here to the Gentiles now, he says, it's not only that you were dead, but you were dead with no thought of redemption of new life because you were outside the place where the knowledge of God existed. You're dead spiritually, but you have no hope of life because you don't have the message of, we'll say the gospel, the knowledge that the Jewish nation had because of their relationship with God. So back in this day, and this is hard for us to get our minds around because it's distant and it's not personal. Um, It doesn't come from our gut the way it would have for them. In God's economy, there were only two classifications of people on earth, Jews and Gentiles. Any other division was meaningless, ultimately. The only division that mattered was, are you a Jew and are you in the place where the knowledge of God exists and so the hope of salvation? Or are you a Gentile? Are you outside that sphere of the knowledge of God? So today we break our communities down into all kinds of ways, right? antagonistic groups, right? So black versus white, immigrants versus natives, wealthy versus poor, African-Americans versus Irish-Americans versus Italian-Americans, maybe the worst of all in our part of the country, Jayhawks versus Wildcats. That's the one that really gets you, isn't it? Some of you are awake. Thank you. So if you were inside the covenant group, if you were a Jew inside the covenant group, You had access, whether you had real life or not, you had access to the one true God, right? And especially if you lived in Israel, that's where he lives, up on that hill. You had his commands, you had his statements of truth in his word. You had the hope of salvation and forgiveness. You had the expectation of God's Savior, that Messiah, right? A Messiah is promised throughout the Old Testament. You know one day God's going to send a special Savior and he's going to save you and your people. You know, by the way, the Jews weren't the only people that had a messianic type hope. You know, Muslims today have a messianic hope, right? The 12th Iman will, will come from his hiding and will, will restore the world to Allah. They have a messianic hope. Ancient cultures had messianic hopes too. Not the true one though, knockoffs. So the Jews were the only one that had the truth about what God said this Messiah would do, where he would come from, how he would save. So apart from a new spiritual birth by faith, Jews were as dead as God to Gentiles 
But at least Jews were in the place where the knowledge of God was available. Was available. So, guys, I am personally, I am if not all Irish, I am almost all Irish. So, my maternal grandparents immigrated from Cork, Ireland in 1919, right through Ellis Island. My paternal family line goes back to about 1854 when the Halpins immigrated from Ireland to the United States. So I am Irish, and that was a big thing. I was Roman Catholic and Irish, and guys, it wasn't just me, everybody in my family, the community we were part of, we identified as Roman Catholic and Irish. My aunties, if you don't know Irish history, the Easter uprising of 1916 was a big deal in the Irish nation's attempt to get rid of British rule. Well, my maternal grand aunts, my grandmother's sisters, they were literally carrying munitions in their petticoats under their dress for Irish rebels in that Easter Day uprising of 1916. We were really, really Irish. You're at my house, if you forgot at any time of day on St. Patrick's Day to have green on, you'd be pinched early and often. And we were Irish and we were proud of it. <clears throat> proud of it, yeah. And I felt that way until one day I went to the library, I was going through some history books, and I picked up a, a book on the Celts. And you know, so the Celts were an interesting group. They started sort of in the, in the Asian area, but then they spread. They were an aggressive group. They spread through most of France, parts of Spain, north and western Spain, and of course, historically, we know the Celts settled in Ireland. So my, my ancestry goes back to the Celts. Now, this sounds fine if you're thinking St. Patrick's Day parades, right? How nice. Uh, but if you read the history of the Celts, su suddenly, suddenly the esteem you had for your forebears, it, it drops a few pegs. You know, I was, uh, I was astounded at what the group of people that I came from was like. And particularly in some of their <clears throat> ceremonies, especially burials, what they would do to people when someone of importance died and, and what that looked like. And I was, I was shocked and disappointed. And, and my, my sense of I'm Irish, you know, it went way, way down. This is ancient history. This was my lineage. Now, I still, I'm, I still love most things Irish, but the people group we came from, it's like there's really not much to take pride in or to boast there. And if you're from the nations, now, if you're Jewish, this isn't true of you, but if you're from the nations, and most of us are, the ethnes, the Gentiles, then guys, if you look back in your history, you'll see the same thing I did. You'll see violent people, unclean people, immoral people, and you'll see that's the norm. That's not the exception. That's the norm. Just go back far enough. And remember again, when this was written, the new covenant's just been instituted. The gospel hasn't been around the nations for 2,000 years like it has today. So you go back to your lineage before the gospel, and that's what you'll find. So the Celts, like the rest of mankind, were without life. They were without the knowledge of God. They were without his word, his promises. And therefore, basically, in Paul's words, they were doubly dead because they're spiritually dead, but they have no hope of life. The knowledge of God isn't there. Verse 12 poignantly states it, having no hope and without God in the world. So you remember we said in the first 10 verses, it's terrible, 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 but you get to verse 4 and it says, but God, and everything changes. Well, the same thing happens here at verse 13. There the phrase is, 
but now in Christ. So if you're from the Gentiles, you have a, a lousy past, no hope of life. But verse 13, everything changes just as the reconciliation of the individual is part of God bringing all things under subjection to Christ. Well, now Paul tells us the same thing is true by God reconciling Jews and Gentiles into one new person. That's also part of God bringing everything under Christ's lordship. So verses 1 through 10, that was an individual's peace with God vertically. That was the emphasis. You, as an individual, are spiritually dead. God restores you vertically. These verses are God, when he gives you new life, he restores your relationships horizontally. Some people, in fact, this, these verses, uh, he is our peace who has broken down every wall. He is our peace, he is our peace, is lousy theology. Because then it goes on to say, cast all your cares on him. He cares for you. That's not what the verse is saying. The peace with God isn't that I have peace with God. Now, in this verse, it's I have peace with you. It's Jews have Gentile, and Gentiles have peace with each other. It's horizontal. And that was a big deal back in the day when Jews and Gentiles were highly antagonistic with each other. So it's difficult for us to think about. The closest thing I could think about, and I, I thought this was interesting, the antagonism groups have for one another, historic, deep-rooted, visceral, well, it'd be the Jews and the Palestinians in the Middle East today. That's the closest thing you can come to. So when, when God's telling these guys through Paul about this reconciliation, we need to be thinking in our minds something like a Palestinian running across and hugging a Jew. Or a Jew running across the line and hugging Palestinians. People who were trying to kill each other before are now loving and supporting each other. That's the kind of opposites being brought together that we're talking about. These guys in their day got it. It's hard for us because there's just not much like that in our world today for us here in the States. So if you, we're going to run through, this won't take long, but I want to do a little bit of justice to what God tells us he had done. So look at verse 13. Gentiles who were far from God are now brought near. Remember that the Gentiles were physically separated from God because the Jews primarily live in that one little spot of land in Palestine. So the Gentiles are scattered across the world. They are physically far removed from the Jews and from the place where God can be known and found. But they're also morally far from God. There, there's a kind of darkness that they have that a Jew didn't. You know, the further you would get away from a light or a candle, the more darkness you have. Well, if you were a Jew, even if you weren't converted, you were in the place where the light was shining. But the Gentiles weren't. They're far removed away from the source of light in darkness. So Romans 9.4 tells us what the Jews had. And Paul's talking about Jews who don't know, him, know God. But he says this is still what they had. He said the Jews had the adoption. When you go back to Exodus 3, God speaks of Israel like his adopted son when he sends Moses back. Israel, the Jews, are his adopted children. They have the glory. Think about the glory of God coming down in the, both the miracles and at Sinai or there in the wilderness wanderings. They have the covenants, multiple covenants, right? Covenants made with Abraham, reaffirmed through Isaac and Jacob, given through David. Multiple covenants the Jews had. They had the giving of the law. This was important, right? The law set them apart. It showed them how to draw near to Yahweh. They had worship. God said, this is the way you draw near to me, through these, through these modes of worship. And they had the promises. God had made them promises. He hadn't made those to Gentiles. 
And last, he said to them, belong the patriarchs. Now, you see Paul doing this in Philippians. If anybody in, in ancient time could boast in their ethnic lineage, it was a Jew. And so Paul says that. He brings that up in Philippians, doesn't he? I can boast I'm an Israelite. So these guys, when they trace their lineage, it's back to Abraham. You know, mine go back to the, the bloody Celts. And I don't know who yours goes back to, but it's, it's not glorious. My lineage is not to Abraham like they could boast. So there was this distance physically, morally, knowledge, intellectually, that the Gentiles had dis desperately far from God. And you see this brought up in Acts 2.39. On the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit fell on those Jewish believers, and when Peter preached to that crowd, he said something, I doubt even if at the time he had a knowledge of the profound depth of what he was saying, but he said there, the promise of the Spirit is for you. And he's speaking only to Jews here, right? It's for you and your children. And it's also for all who are far off. Those who are far off, those are Gentiles. All those who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. So Gentiles who are physically distant, morally distant, they're going to be brought near. Verse 14 says, uh, he himself is our peace. So the peace that Jews and Gentiles couldn't buy, couldn't barter for, couldn't get any other way. It says now in Jesus, they have peace with each other. Again, this is horizontal, it's not vertical. Look at verse 15. Gentiles have been made into a new unity with Jews. It says one new man in place of the two. This was weird. This was new. You know, if you were a Gentile and you wanted to get close to Yahweh, you had to become what was called a God-fearer. That wasn't the same as being Jewish, but you basically said, I believe in Yahweh, but if I'm a guy, I'm not circumcised. I'm, I'm not a Jew, but I'm worshiping closer to Yahweh than I was before. Gentiles had to become Jewish, if you will, to draw near to the Jewish God, to the one true God, to Yahweh. This isn't saying that's going on. Gentiles aren't becoming Jews. And again, you get this when you read through the book of Acts, don't you? How big a deal it was. The Jews don't know what to make of the new covenant and the implications for their relationship with Gentiles. Galatians, do those Gentile believers need to be circumcised? Is that, do they need to keep Sabbath? Do they need to keep the law? They didn't know. It was all new to them. So Paul says, no, Gentiles are part of one new man. They're now tied together with Jews, but it's not because they've become Jews. It's because God's doing something entirely new. One new man. You see this in chapter 3. basically said all of this was a secret. The Jews didn't know this was coming. When you read Old Testament prophecies that have not yet occurred, you read about, think of uh, Zechariah and Isaiah particularly, you read about Gentiles going up to Jerusalem to worship, but it's as Gentiles to Jewish worship in Jerusalem. It's, it's not in this one new man unity that... Paul's talking about here. Verse 18 says, the Gentiles have direct access to God the Father by the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're a Jew hearing this or a Gentile, think about this for just a second. So God has barriers around him. Physical barriers. Moral barriers, right? So if you want to go meet with God, you would have to go wherever you were. You'd have to go to Jerusalem. You'd have to march up the hill. The only way to get to the Temple Mount is a series of stairs, one set of stairs or another. <clears throat> Physical barriers. You've got to go from one court to another court to another court to another court to the holy place to the Holy of Holies. 
And the only person who ever gets into the Holy of Holies where God is present, there's this glow, there's this glory present in the Holy of Holies, just like in the Exodus. Uh, only one guy gets in there once a year. The high priest, once a year, do all the proper sacrifices, go in once a year and splatter some blood on the mercy seat. So God's telling Gentiles, you can go in and you can see Yahweh face to face as a Gentile. Can you imagine what the, the Jews, this was, this was mind altering. This was, this was vol volcanic in how big a deal this was. So verse 19 says the Gentiles are now fellow citizens in God's kingdom. They're members of God's household as Gentiles and they're part of the new temple God's being, God is building up by the Spirit. So anything the Jews could have hoped for and beyond is now true of Gentiles as Gentile believers, not as Jewish proselytes. So a big question becomes then, how did that happen? How did that happen? How did this huge divide, this cosmic divide between Jews and Gentiles, how was it broke? What did God do to break that down? Verse 14 says it this way. He's broken down the dividing wall of hostility. So we might think here in our mind's eye of that sore egg on the Temple Mount, that physical wall that kept Jews on one side and Gentiles on the other. But that's not actually what Paul's talking about here. But vis visually, that's a good reminder of what that would have been like in our own minds. He says, verse 15, a parallel thought by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. What was the law that divided Jews from Gentiles? It was the law of Moses. It was the covenant God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. And guys, if you remember, when you read through that law, you see that point by point by point, God made sure the Jews were separated from the Gentiles. So physically, you guys live in this one place. You're physically separate. But also morally, the rabbis would say, Torah is a fence around Israel. It keeps us in, it keeps Gentiles out. So this was God's covenant with Israel that Paul is talking about. That was the wall that kept Jews on one side and Gentiles on the other, much more profoundly than a physical wall on the Temple Mount ever could. They were physically separate and they were also morally separate before, and all that gets changed. So as long as the commands remain in place, guys, as long as the Old Covenant, what we call the Old Covenant, is in force, the Gentiles can never be reconciled to the Jews. So if something doesn't happen to that covenant, the Gentiles have no hope of this new man unity with Jews. So something's got to happen there. And that brings up the question, if the covenant's the promise, the problem, and God made the covenant with Israel, then how do we get rid of that covenant? And you see this in verses 13, 14, and 16. So how was that wall, how was the law, the covenant, how was that abolished? Verse 13 says it's by the blood of Christ. Verse 14 says it's in the flesh of Christ. And verse 16 says it's through the cross of Christ. So how did God get rid of the covenant that banned Gentiles from his presence? He got rid of the covenant through Jesus' blood, through Jesus' body, through the cross of Christ. So we trace our lineage individually to Jesus' cross, right? You come to the cross, repent and believe Jesus died for you. But Paul's telling us it was the cross of Christ that broke down the covenant that divided Gentiles from Jews also. The death of Christ on the cross, his body, his blood on the cross, that's what broke down that wall of barrier, that old covenant. Um, 
The reason Jesus could do that, God instituted the covenant. The Jews didn't. God instituted it. The reason Jesus could do that was because Jesus came and lived as the perfect Jew. Under the law, he satisfied all the righteous demands of the law, and then he fulfilled all the types and shadows of the law, the sacrifices, the blood of bulls and goats and pigeons and everything else. He fulfilled that in himself. When Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, he's not saying the old covenant is going to remain in force. He tells his disciples at the Last Supper, this is the blood of the new covenant. In his life, he fulfilled the covenant. He kept it. And then he filled it up by becoming the antitype to the type, the reality versus the shadows of those Old Testament offerings, all the sacrifices that could never put sin away, really. So his death on the cross covers your sin and mine individually, but it was also the means of God saying that old covenant is now gone because I've replaced it with a new covenant. Christians are profoundly confused on this, by the way. And, and biblically, there's no need for that. You cannot have, a covenant is like a will. There's only one in force at a time. Guys, if there's a new covenant, the old covenant is not, cannot be in force. It can't happen. You can read about this in Hebrews 8. So you've got, that's how the wall, that's how the covenant, the laws that separated Jews and Gentiles is broken down and gotten rid of. It's through the cross of Christ. So once that's happened, something's got to happen too. And that's basically that Gentiles have to have a proclamation made that you can now come to God, not as a Jew, that the gospel is for you just like it's for Jews. Gentiles and Jews now get the same message of salvation. And so you got the verse from the Old Testament, he came and preached peace to you who were far off. Well, that's the proclamation of the gospel. And you see that in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. The, the disciples know something's up, right? Jesus said here, without articulating the distinction between Jews and Gentiles, make disciples of all nations. That's wild, because we're Jews. And when you read through the story of Acts, they still don't know what to make of this. But Jesus said, distance doesn't separate you anymore. You go make, make disciples of the ethnes, the Gentiles. They don't speak your language. They don't share your lineage. It doesn't matter. You go and make disciples of all of them. I think you've got some references for Acts 9 and Romans 1 on there as well. So in the last thing there, verse 20, you are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Paul's really referencing God is the new temple. And it's not a temple made with hands. It's not the temple up there on the Temple Mount. It's this new building comprised of living stones. Peter will talk about later. It's living stones, which are Jews and Gentiles built into one new temple, one new man. I'm doing outstanding on time, by the way. So, so God says, in the ways that mattered most or mattered to him, there was only one distinction, one difference in class of people that mattered, and it was, were you a Jew? And therefore, at least in the place where you can get the knowledge of God and be saved, or are you a Gentile outside the knowledge and a potential relationship with God? That's the only one that matters. So if God healed in Christ's death and resurrection, if he healed the only horizontal breach that God considered significant, think of it that way, is there any difference, is there any distinction left in our humanity that isn't bridged by what Jesus did on the cross and the ability to unite us 
with anyone else who shares that faith in Christ? Is there anything left, any distinction left that matters? We'd have to say there's not, right? There's no distinction left that is meant or should keep Christians from other Christians. Now, we're not talking about the gospel here. Muslims are Christ rejectors. Buddhists are Christ rejectors. We're not saying that people who hold other religions or come from other parts of the world are part of what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about Gentiles who have embraced Messiah. For others who hold an orthodox faith in Jesus, is there any point of division left that should separate us from them, them from us? Basically, you've got to conclude, no, if the only one that mattered to God has been healed, then there should be no other point of division for us that matters. So for us today, in the church, we don't want to identify as African Americans, or Irish Americans, or black, or white, or native, or Hispanic, or whatever. It's not that we don't recognize the lineage from which each of us comes. It's that has nothing to do with our standing in the church of Jesus Christ. We are Christians. We are Christ. We are God's children, whatever our skin color, our ethnicity, our background, our physical points of origin, the only thing that matters now is that we are Christ, and now we're built up with each other into the same temple. We're also brothers and sisters in the same family. So no other distinctions matter today. And consider this, and this is profoundly important to me, if I am less than gladly accepting of others, because of skin color or past history or one thing or another, a person who shares the same faith in Christ I do, who has the same father, who has the same spirit and the same savior, what am I saying about the blood and the body of Jesus broken on the cross for my salvation and for God's plan to make one new body? What am I saying? I said, I'll take it, but I don't want you to give it to them. I'm dissing what Jesus did on the cross in his death and resurrection, if I don't gladly accept that whatever background someone else comes from, if we share Christ, we are brothers and sisters in the same household. We are members of the same temple in the same body. There should be no distinction that keeps us apart. Now, if you come from different cultures, you might have different expressions of worship. Your services might look a little different. That's all fine. But if someone from a different cultural background, a believer, comes here or we go there, we should be gladly accepted because there's no point of distinction left because of the cross of Christ. It's interesting. Paul says in Acts 17 that we all initially came from one blood. We all initially came from one blood, Adam. And now Paul says here in Ephesians 2, and now we are reunited again through one blood blood in Christ, the second Adam, that one new man. You started with one blood, and now with all the disparate groups around the world, you're reunited back by one blood in one new life and one new man. I don't know if you guys have ever read, uh, you know what, I totally forgot to cover something, guys, and I don't want to miss it. What if I just skipped a page? But I'm fine on time, so just sit there and be patient. Okay. Yeah, I don't want to miss this. I don't want to miss this. And then I'll finish. Um, do you remember in, in Genesis 2, the creation account? You know, so Genesis 1 is kind of a brief 
brief creation account. Genesis 2 sort of elaborates on that. And you remember Adam is created on the sixth day and God makes sure he sees all the animals and there's a male and a female and he names them. But the point is uh, they all have a, a mate, a counterpart that you don't, a complementary one that matches you but is different. And so he sees that and he realizes I'm by myself. They all have somebody like them but different. I don't. So God makes him see the difference. And then you remember what he does? He lays him down in the dust. He puts a heavy sleep on him. He wounds his side. He takes a rib. And from the rib, he makes Eve, Adam's complement. So Adam sees her and he knows, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she's it. Uh, I'm Ish and she's Isha, uh, man and woman. The Hebrew and the English actually work together pretty well there. She's the one. So in the cross of Christ, what you have is essentially the same thing, right? No accident that the soldier pierces the side of Christ right through the ribs, right? So the birth of the church is just like, the, the picture you have in Genesis 2 is just like the birth of the church. That God means us to see that Jesus, the second Adam, is laid down in the dust of death from his wounded side comes his counterpart from his wound, from his blood, from his side. So we want to be careful. We want to honor Christ's death, his blood, his sacrifice, because that's how we got our salvation, and that's how God was putting together this new bride, this counterpart for Christ. Okay. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr., you know, people in history get abused by whatever group uh, wants to use their name or what they said. And, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. had feet of clay, like all of us, for sure. If you read his history, you know that plagiarism and adultery and some other things. The FBI kept close watch on him. But guys, he had a profound impact on this nation that would be unwise and uncharitable, really, to overlook. And I tell you, I've read lots of speeches made by politicians in the United States, the Founding Fathers. But I'll tell you, his I Have a Dream speech is right up there at the top of the speeches you can read by anybody in United States history. You can go to YouTube, you can listen to it, you can watch it, you can read the text. It is profound. It's, it's one of the most brilliant speeches you'll ever read. And you know, in his day, he was looking at the wall of separation legally and physically that kept blacks and whites in the United States from mingling as co-equals. And so he's developing that theme. And as he winds down in that speech, he said that his dream was that one day black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, and he's not talking about the church, but just the various religions or skin color or histories we bring together in this nation, would be able to join in song thanking God for freedom, simply freedom to live as free men and women here in the same country, in the same place. That was profound back in that day, wasn't it? Race riots, murders, lynch. This was profoundly needed. And as great as a dream that was, it pales in comparison to what God was up to. Because all those unions, those happy points of fellowship on planet Earth, they're here for a moment and then they're gone. But what God was up to was creating one new man, black, white, Italians, Celts, South Americans, North Americans, you name it, bringing all those disparate pieces of the Gentile puzzle back together with Jews to create one new eternal counterpart for God's son, Jesus. And I love the way it's stated in Revelation 5, 9, you know, Revelation 4 and 5, two great chapters that side by side are about what kind of worship is occurring with God in heaven. And it says there of Jesus, the lamb, who is also the lion from the tribe of Judah, you were slain. That's his blood. That's his body. That's the cross of Christ. 
you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. That's what God's up to today. No distinction. We want to make sure we have that same mindset. One, in our willingness to share the gospel with anyone that we might otherwise be prejudiced against. The willingness to share the gospel, but profoundly here that those who share our faith in Christ, that we recognize and embrace each other as the brothers and sisters in God's household that we are, as the fellow members we are in the bride of Christ, that Jesus died to redeem. That changes everything. Changes everything. Lord, thanks that we have peace with you through our Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. And Father, thanks that the divisions that existed between our humanity horizontally have all been set aside in the blood of Christ as well. Father, would you help us to honor you and the the inestimably high cost your son paid for our redemption and our inclusion in that eternal counterpart to Jesus, your son. Would you help us to honor that by the way we treat our brothers and sisters in the faith from whatever background they may come? May you help us to see each other as co-equal members in the body of Christ, your temple, the church. Amen.